The boys enjoyed Thanksgiving, a time when family sits around a table, enjoys a meal together, talks together. In John chapters 13 through 17, John records for us Jesus' lengthy conversations with his disciples as they sit together, eating the Passover meal, celebrating God's deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt some 1,400 years earlier. Those five chapters, the first four, chapters 13 through 16, are certainly worthy of our careful examination. But for the next several weeks, we're going to turn our focus to John chapter 17. So please let me ask you to turn there, to John the 17th chapter. This uh, 17th chapter, it could um, rightly be entitled the Lord's Prayer. What we uh, traditionally call the Lord's Prayer is in truth the disciples' prayer, a prayer taught to us by our Lord, a prayer taught to us to pray. But here in John 17, it is our Lord who is praying. So listen as he prays. John writes, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, 
and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you, had, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray together. Father, this incredible chapter that some have referred to as the most profound theological statement in all of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would give us clarity of understanding as we proceed to understand the many facets of what is set before us here. As our Savior prays, as he prays for himself, as he prays for those who are immediately his disciples as he prays for us. Lord, may we be encouraged, may we be instructed, may we be challenged 
And may we be built up in our love and in our faith for you and for your word. Father, by the words of this prayer, sanctify us, set us apart to your holy purposes. Sanctify us in your truth, for your word is truth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, the setting of this 17th chapter of John's Gospel is the night before our Lord is betrayed. He is in the upper room celebrating with his disciples this final Passover meal. And as they celebrate together, you have this magnificent conversation that takes place between Jesus and his disciples in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, which leads to this prayer. Following this prayer will come Jesus' entrance into Gethsemane, his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his death, his crucifixion, his burial, and then his resurrection from the dead. This prayer, it is so, it is so intriguing. It, it, it obviously, as I've already pointed out to you, it can be easily divided into three parts. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for you and me, for all who by grace through faith have embraced him as Savior and Lord and King. I want us to look at this prayer, and we're going to look at this prayer rather slowly at first. It will gain speed as we proceed. But before we look directly at this prayer, I want you to appreciate the, the setting of what is taking place here. Look at the beginning of chapter 13. As they gather in the upper room to celebrate together the Passover. This is what we read, John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, his hour to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knows the hour has come. Interestingly, look back in chapter 12. Chapter 12. Immediately following our Lord's triumphal entry. This is what we're told in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 23. The Lord tells two of his disciples, the hour has come. The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you have recently read John's Gospel, or the next time that you do read John's Gospel, or you have some appreciation for the content of John's Gospel, you can immediately realize how many times in John's Gospel various situations arise in which John tells the reader, His hour had not come. His hour had not come. His hour 
had not come. All the way back in John 2, after Jesus changes the water into wine, or I should say, before Jesus changes the water into wine, before his mother makes that request of him, Jesus tells her, woman, my hour has not come. That same phrase is repeated over and over again, but now we've come to the Passion Week. It begins with the triumphal entry. It will end with Jesus lying dead in a grave. And here in John 12, immediately after his triumphal entry, you have this declaration on the part of our Lord. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, I'm just going to take a moment there. Now, just sort of try to, try to think like you would, you would imagine the disciples would think, all right? Just try to think that way. Try to, try to understand what's going here with, with no more understanding than you know that disciples might have had at that moment. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Sounds pretty good. I mean, isn't that what we want it? Don't we want the Lord to be glorified? Jesus says in verse 32, uh, he says in verse 31, at the end of verse 31, he says, Now, now, this hour of which I have spoken, now will the rulers of this world be cast out. Verse 31, the beginning, now will be the judgment of the world. Now, verse 32, now when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. <laughs> I, I, I may be wrong. I, I've been wrong before. But I, I just can imagine the disciples going, okay, yeah, this is what we're looking for. We want Jesus to be glorified. That's exactly what we want. We want him to be lifted up before all the world. We want him to be lifted up on high, drawing all men to himself. We want the hour to come when his judgment will be poured out upon the rulers of this world and they will be cast out once and for all. Of course, what they don't clearly understand and what will by the end of the week leave them just absolutely confused and disheartened is what John tells us in verse 33 of John chapter 12. That Jesus, that Jesus spoke about his being lifted up from the earth, that when he, that when he did that, he spoke that way to show them by what kind of death he was going to die. He was speaking to them of that horrible and torturous death of crucifixion that would soon be inflicted upon him. Now, I take the time to point all that out to you because go to John 17.1. And I, I beg your indulgence this morning. I've got this headset that's not mine, and it doesn't fit. So if you wonder why I keep, I, I don't, my ears aren't itching. It's that I'm trying to keep this thing in place. So um, 
just blame somebody else, but don't blame me. Okay. Okay. Um, now go to John 17, verse 1. I've taken the time to show you all that because as Jesus begins to pray, these are the words with which his prayer begins. Father, the hour has come. That means, that means that as Jesus here prays, he prays fully understanding, fully aware of what lies ahead because he knows what it means for him to say, the hour has come. Now, having begun that way, I'm now going to discourage a great many of you because while we will carefully examine this prayer over the next several weeks, while we will carefully examine this prayer over a period of time, this morning I really do beg your patience because I'm going to just pause even here at the beginning to focus our attention on one word. And that word that we so often kind of take for granted, perhaps so often properly used in our own prayer because it's how Jesus taught us to pray. And that's Jesus addressing the Lord as Father. Father. Look at this prayer. Four times in this prayer. Verse 1, verse 5, verse 21, verse 24. Four times. Jesus addresses the one to whom he prays as Father. But now also note, look at the middle of verse 11. Look at the middle of verse 11. In the middle of verse 11... He addresses the one to whom he prays as Holy Father. And then look at verse 25. In verse 25, he addresses the one to whom he prays as Righteous Father. This is, this is really, I think this is significant for us and for our prayer life. Because Jesus, here as he prays, he, he sets before us this example of, of, of himself using, uh, um, using, a term of, uh, using a term of great intimacy and yet using that term of intimacy, combining that term of intimacy with an expression of deep reverence and awe. And I would suggest, and it's the reason I pause here, is be, I, I'm suggesting to you that there is much for us to, to learn from how Jesus uses these terms here in John chapter 17. In, in addressing God as Father, Jesus uses a term of endearment 
that you as a child might have used or you might still use in addressing your earthly father. I mean, it's really staggering. And we probably have no idea of how, um, uh, how stunning this was to Jesus' immediate audience. Jews did not pray this way. They did not address God with such intimacy. They didn't, they just didn't do that. But it's the term that Jesus is, that Jesus used. And, of course, it's the term that Jesus teaches us to use when we pray. It's an intimate term. The word he uses here is Abba. Many of you know that. It's Abba. And it's a word, it's the very word that a child would use in speaking of his or her father. It's a word that can properly, properly, properly be translated daddy or papa or whatever your particular word of endearment for your father might be. If by grace, if by grace you have embraced Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King, it's because He has first chosen you to be His child. The Creator of heaven and earth has chosen you to be his child. He has adopted you. He has has chosen to love you before you knew his name. He has chosen to love you since before the foundations of the world were set into place. He is your father, He is your daddy. He is your papa. He loves you as the best of fathers. And knowing that he first loved you is why you love him as the best of fathers. If you don't love him, it may well be because you have not yet realized that he first loved you. Because when you understand who he is, and when you just try to grasp the idea that he has chosen to love me, loving him in return is not a task. It's not hard. It's a delight. I, I, had, I had a loving father. It was easy for me to love him. Now, I know, I understand that some of you didn't have fathers who were easy to love. I understand that. And I know that a few of you may have had fathers who were, in truth, terribly unloving. And so, therefore, this whole concept may be hard for you to get a, may be hard for you to difficult, to, may be difficult for you to grasp. But by God's grace, through faith, 
He is your heavenly Father whose love for you is always good, it's always perfect, it's always precisely what you need. Now now come back to John 17. This is Jesus who is praying. Now, Jesus, of course, being fully God and fully man at one and the same time, Jesus being one with the Father, being equal with Him in power and glory, Jesus knew, Jesus knew with complete understanding, with perfect understanding that He was loved by His Father. And of course, Jesus loved Him perfectly in response with all of His heart and soul and strength and mind because He's fully God. But this is the great mystery that is always so hard for us to get a handle on. I mean, here it is. As Jesus prays here in John 17, what is hard for us to keep a handle on is that He prays as a man. He prays as a man just like us in every way except for the fact that his life was never stained by sin. I mean, we as evangelicals, we struggle to keep a handle on the fact that Jesus was fully man. We, We seem to quickly embrace the idea that he was fully God. We struggle to remember that he was fully man. I mean... How many of us are still stunned when we turn to Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 and we're told that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered? (laughs) I mean, how many times have I read that and go, no. That's what the Scriptures teach. I mean, how can that be? Because he was fully man. How can he be fully man and fully God at one of the same? I don't have the slightest idea. But it is precisely what the Scriptures teach. And the writer of Hebrews tells us he learned obedience through what he suffered. What did he suffer? He suffered every temptation that you have ever suffered, are suffering, or will suffer. Everyone. Just think of him as a man at the beginning of his earthly ministry, when he goes toe-to-toe with Satan for 40 days, goes toe-to-toe with Satan in ways no one here can ever imagine. I don't care what you think the temptations are that you have faced or are facing or, or, or are fearful that you may face. For those 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus went toe-to-toe with Satan in ways that you cannot even imagine. And then near the end of his earthly ministry in Gethsemane, Jesus, the man, the man in Gethsemane, what does he pray? I mean, even to this day, I read what he prays in Gethsemane and I'm going, no. Jesus prays, Father, take this cup from me. Wow. but not my will. Your will be done. And guess so many, he sweats drops of blood as he wrestles with the horror that awaits him. Not simply the horror of physical torture. Listen, 
Now, he's not sweating simply the horror of physical torture. He's sweating the far greater horror of knowing that the hour has come, that the moment has arrived, that there will be this, this blip in time when the Father will turn his back on him. He is the sinless one. He is God come in human flesh. But for a moment of time, he will be rejected by God the Father. God the Son, rejected by God the Father. Why? Because though sinless, God the Father will lay upon God the Son your iniquity. And therefore, he will be crushed. God the Father will place upon Him your transgressions and therefore He will be pierced. For you, the immortal dies. Those words don't even make sense. The immortal dies. what the Scriptures teach. I don't begin to pretend to understand that truth. But I know that it is true with all of my heart and soul and strength and mind. For you, the immortal dies. And yet here in John 17, Jesus knowing the horror that would soon overwhelm him. Jesus prays confidently. Prays confident of the Father's love. And though he knows what the Father's will is for him, he knows the hour that lies ahead. He knows the horror that lies ahead. He still addresses God the Father as Daddy, as Papa. But now think again about verse, the latter half of verse 11 and, and verse 25 in John 17. The latter half of verse 11 and verse 25 in John 17. While Jesus addresses God Using this intimate term of endearment, Abba, he also addresses Abba as holy. He also addresses Abba as righteous. Jesus knows his Father isn't some fearful, fearsome deity, but he also knows that he isn't someone to be taken lightly. The Scripture talks about us fearing the Lord, but the fear of which the Scripture speaks is more properly understood as awe, as, as, as reverence. And all that is entailed when you are in awe of someone, when you properly reverence someone, Jesus knows that 
The Father is holy. He, he knows that the Father is not part of the sinful creation, that he, that he is transcendent, that He is majestic above all. Jesus knows that His Father is perfectly righteous, that He always does what is right. And the reason He always does what is right, because He is right. He is the lawgiver. He's the one who determines what is right. Why is our culture so confused? Why do we once more celebrate this particular Sunday, remember this particular Sunday? Why do we now hold our breath as the Supreme Court begins to make a decision about same-sex unions? Because we don't have a clue what is right. And the reason we don't have a clue what is right is because we don't know God. If there is no God, there is no right or wrong. It's all arbitrary. If there is no God, there is no right and wrong. It's all arbitrary. It's all whatever, in a democracy at least, what 51% want. That becomes the standard of right and wrong. How scary is that? How quickly do the whims of a culture change? Who knows what tomorrow may bring? God, be merciful to us. Do not treat us as we deserve. Send once more your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of those who are blind and forgive us who know the truth, who so often just deliberately choose to ignore that truth. Forgive us. He knows His Father is holy. He knows His Father is righteous. Jesus knows, let's put it this way, Jesus knows that His Daddy is not someone into whose presence he should come with his brain in neutral. How often do you do that? How often do I do that? How often do we do that? How often do I pray with my brain in neutral? How often do I pray as if God were a jolly Santa Claus whose purpose is to fulfill my every wish? How often do I pray without an awareness of my sin, without without even pausing to think about the absolute holiness of the one into whose presence I now enter, a sinner saved by grace and by grace alone. How often do I pray without remembering that only because of the shed blood of God the Son can I be led by God the Holy Spirit into the presence of God the Father? How often... How often do I flippantly come before him, speak to him as if he were simply my good buddy? My father was my daddy. But let me tell you what, my father was never my good buddy. If Jesus, God the Son, prays, 
acknowledging God the Father's holiness and absolute righteousness. Why would I ever dare approach him with less reverence and awe? I need to hear once more the sinless angels falling before him and singing, holy, holy, holy. I need to see once more Isaiah trembling before him, confessing his unworthiness to stand before the lawgiver, the judge of right and wrong. So how do we put together the ideas, these ideas? How do we put together the idea that he is our daddy, that he is our papa, but at the same time, he's holy, he's righteous. For me, personally, C.S. Lewis's depiction of God as a lion in the Chronicles of Narnia serves well to illustrate for me this point. In Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the lions roar. The roar of Aslan makes all of Narnia tremble. And at his appearance, all Narnians, friends and foes alike, all bow before him. And yet, and yet, Lucy and Susan feel free to hug him, to kiss him, to nuzzle in his fearsome muzzle, his fearsome mane. Yes, he's a good lion, but he's not a tame lion. I think that's magnificent. I think that goes a long ways to helping me get a handle on the fact that he's my daddy, but he's also holy. He's also righteous. I love my daddy. I knew he loved me. I was comfortable in his presence, but I also had a deep respect for him. I would not dare think of speaking to him in a flippant manner because I knew that if I did there'd be a price to pay and how grateful I am to be able to tell you that he would not tolerate flippancy he would not tolerate sass he would not tolerate expressions of disrespect why? Because he was a wonderful, loving father. That's why. Children, you are to honor your parents. That's God's command. You are not to disrespect them. Parents, I know our time is long, but I have to do this. Parents, your children must be confident of your love. And then your love should be answered by their love not with a sassy mouth or a disrespectful attitude, 
Parents, do not allow your children to speak to you or to treat you disrespectfully. Don't do that. Do you love them? If you love them, don't do that. You're training them. You're training them because you love them. You're training them to know not to disrespect their Heavenly Father. Parents, you live before them in a manner that earns their respect, instruct and train them to honor you, to obey you, for if they do, it will profoundly help them to learn to honor and obey their Heavenly Father. Next week we'll proceed to ask and answer the question for what does Jesus pray knowing that his hour has come? But now our hour has come. And I must close. But I close asking you. Are you confident of his love? Are you confident of His love? Can you rest peacefully in His love knowing that He holds the future? That His purposes are yea and amen? That He will work all things together for good to accomplish the good purpose of making you more and more an image bearer of Him? You can. You can know that He is your daddy even as you know that He is holy He is the perfectly holy, the perfectly righteous one. You can know those things by grace through faith in God the Son. Grace by grace through faith in Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, and your King. For those who who so believe, remember, He's your Daddy. He's holy, and He's righteous. And for those of you who do not yet know those things to be true, I can only pray that by God's mercy, this will be your hour. Let's pray. Father, holy, righteous. Forgive our sins. Heal us once more. Make us anew in your image. these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.